you know, it was interesting. There was never a position time where I didn't think I couldn't get up. It was just a matter of like how much time it took to get there. I feel the same way where I'm like, I know that if you give me something, I will execute on it and I will do it well because you just can't not do it well yeah. if you're a perfectionist. Welcome to Enoughness. My name is Lisa Wang, national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur. This is a show that dives into the deeply personal stories of top business leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and athletes who share the defining inflection points that help them embrace their life's purpose and answer the question, how much is good enough? Today on the show, we have Beth Ferreira. She's a managing director at FirstMark Capital, an early-stage VC that works alongside incredible companies like Airbnb, Shopify, and more. Prior to FirstMark, Beth was the founder and managing partner at WME Ventures. She got her start in entrepreneurship as the VP of Operations and Finance at Etsy, playing a pivotal role in transforming the company into a profitable global e-commerce platform. She went on to become the chief operating officer at fab.com, where she scaled the company to global dimensions. Prior to that, she was on the investment team at Flatiron Partners and also held positions at BCG and UBS. Today, we talked to Beth about what it's like to go through all of these transitions, and especially those difficult ones where people are asking you, what in the world are you thinking? How do you get past those voices externally and internally so that you can find your purpose? That and much more. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thank you for having me, Lisa. You have quite the prolific background and many transitions throughout your career. Can you tell me just just your story about how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um I was fortunate enough to graduate from Penn and where a lot of people were very focused on business. I had a lot of student debt and went into banking and was able to clear that out pretty quickly. Um, and at the, towards the end of my tenure in banking, I worked with an early stage company that was raising debt instead of equity for their company. And I spent a lot of time with them working on their business plan and helping them think through strategy. And it was sort of the big wake up call of, this was what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with companies and entrepreneurs just like that team and not sort of the older companies. And that sort of set my, the stage for my entire career, the entire rest of my career. Um, at that point, um, the Internet was just starting to become become on the scene. I did a you know, sort of search. I was based here in New York of the companies here as well as, you know, firms working in the Internet space and found a firm called Flatiron Partners, sent them a blind cover letter and um, I don't want to say harass them, but <laughs> called them a lot um, until they ended up hiring me. And that was sort of the, you know, I had a front row seat for, you know, the first dot com wave. And um, it was an amazing experience. And then where'd you go from there? Um, so then I, I went to business school. I came out, um, did a stint at Boston Consulting Group, and left there to work at Etsy as an early employee and saw a ton of scale. So they were two years in. We scaled about 25 acts during my period of the time that I was there. And um, it was a great experience. Left Etsy, went to Fab. Also in the early stages, we we scaled even faster than than Etsy. 
obviously didn't have the outcome that we were hoping. So, um, and then post post fab founded WME Ventures, which is the venture arm of WME IMG, the talent agency. For a lot of people, you have this amazing track record and you've really checked off all the boxes. You went to a great school. You were able to go to one of the top consulting firms. You were a operating partner at very successful companies. And now you're a partner at a top venture fund. Did you always know that that was the path you were going to take? So I knew I wanted to work with early stage companies and I had an incredible experience at Flatiron Partners. I got to do, you know, we obviously were on the investment side. We did a ton of investing in the tenure there. Um, I, you know, it was a time where companies, people were starting companies out of the blue. So, you know, the CFO of a company, um, in the fundraising process would leave to start their next because it was, you know, such a um, prolific time of of um, starting companies in that space. And uh, and so I got to see some of the operating side close up during my period of time, like taking, you know, pitch hitting for a CFO or a head of business development that might have left during certain important pivotal points. So when I when I post the dot-com crash, there was a couple of things. One, I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an operator. I, I was sort of intrigued by that side. Um, but two, I knew even if I ultimately didn't want to be an operator, I'd love the investment side. So that experience would give me one um, more empathy for the entrepreneur and really understanding what their process was. And two, uh, an understanding of how a company actually really works from the inside. And so while that might not make me a better investor, it would make me a better um, a better picker, it would really help me be a better partner to the entrepreneur. And when you went into Etsy, what stage was it? Um, we are sub-20 employees. So it was really early stage. It had, I think, about $5 million in GMV, um, gross merchandise value. And... Um, and, you know, we were in the early stages. I mean, the, I think we were at a place where the product, we had product market fit, but there was just so much that needed to be done and we were starting to scale and things were starting to break. And so a lot of things needed to be done. One, just sort of a like a, a first sort of professionalization of the functions around building the business. At the time, we had, you know, a great engineering team and a great, you know, product visionary and the founder, but everything else needed to be built out. And so um, it was just a race because there was so much going on. Um, and it was such an incredible business from the standpoint of uh, there are few businesses that have really transformed the lives per of their participants, particularly the sellers in the case of Etsy. And it was... Um, it was incredibly rewarding to be a part of a business that had that much impact. Did you have any trepidation when you were entering at, at the early stage? Um, so, you know, as someone who um, you know, is type A, has always you know, checked the boxes that you've, you've discussed, and even being close to the early stage businesses but on the venture side, you know, I was sitting in a seat um, 
at BCG, which is you know pretty conservative, the natural place where you would go, it was you know a Fortune 500 company or you know a Fortune 100 company, let alone an early stage startup in Brooklyn. Um, you know, with I think we had you know less than a couple million of funding at the time, and so I literally had a partner um, call me every month for the first, I don't know, nine or 10 months I was there saying like, are you done? Are you done with this experiment? We have some projects for you to do (laughs) back in the office. And so it was, it was, I think I was one of the, if not the first there, one of the first who went to go work for a startup. And this was, you know, back in 2007 and so it was just such a foreign concept now you see consultants come in droves into the tech (laughs) tech space Um, but then it was a little bit odd yeah and um, what was that transition like for you you know going from from that kind of conservative place at BCG and into this world of entrepreneurship Um, I think the biggest challenge was adjusting to the skill set of the team that we had. So I always, you know, I'd, I'd had many people reporting to me at different points in my career, but they were all just like me. It's like they, you know, they had the same skill set. They, you know, it almost could read your mind before you were actually doing it. And so it actually, um, I think it was part of... Um, my transformation there was part of what made me a manager because I had to understand one, had to get the varying skill sets to do what we needed to get done for, you know, to set goals for the holiday or, you know, prepare for a fundraise or all the things that we needed to do. And so um, it made me – and. And Etsy was also a very distinct culture where anything that was sort of more corporate was rejected. And so it forced me to create a whole new language on how I communicated around work, which I think, um, which was incredibly difficult, but I think stretched me to make sure that we were always focused on the most important things. Mm -hmm. Did you ever question yourself as a manager in that new role? Um, All the time. I think, you know, one is, um, you know, it was very, it was challenging from the standpoint of um, being sort of the liaison to a, a board that had certain expectations and a company that had others. And it was, you know, sort of being pulled in multiple directions. And I think that was in and of itself something that was super challenging. I think also doing it for the first time, startups are such a um, challenging situation no matter where you are. Um, uh, to go through it the first time and understand what the pain points are at different levels of scale and and sort of what the natural and normal things that you're dealing with are. I mean, when I did it again for the second time, there were so many things that were so much easier. So many things that were like, oh, this was just like we did it the last time. Or, you know, oh, I remember when this happened and this is what we, this is how we dealt with it. But certainly the first time it was, um, I look, I, I drink a lot of wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and at what point did you go to business school? I went to business school after, so I, I was a banker and then um, worked in VC. And I went after the 
the dot-com crash. I, I worked for a bit um, at our sole limited partner's office and then um, went to business school. So I went – it was a – it was an interesting time because I think a lot of people in my class were displaced. And so really thinking, and it was also an almost liberating point of saying, what was great about our careers before? What do we really want to do going forward? And so there was, um, I think, probably a higher level of discussion around that during that period than there probably is normally. And when you were discussing that question of what is it that you really want to do, do you feel like the approach to the question was more from a place of, oh, my God, we don't know what we're going to do, or, like, very appreciative and abundant that there are all these opportunities? Um, I think at the time, I don't know if people actually thought there were abundance of opportunities. I think they all <laughs> felt like they were, like, fighting and elbowing with their fellow, you know, for the, you know, the spots at Goldman Sachs or, you know, at the time Google was starting to online recruit and things like that. Um but I think it was I, I think there was there was some sort of panic, but it also I think because the crash was so profound, it made many of us really go inward and think about like what's important, what do I want to spend my life doing? How do I want to spend my days? who I, what are the kinds of organizations I want to work with? And so um, and so I think it was a it was a probably healthier and and more sort of pushing the envelope type of conversation that said when I graduated almost everyone like mm. recruited six months beforehand didn't do independent <laughs> job searches and yeah. things like that so <laughs> so whether or not they were really following their dreams is a whole yeah. nother story <laughs> but those are the kind of conversations we were having so what did you conclude for yourself that would be really important for you moving on and what's that why today for you um I wanted to build. I wanted to be working on on uh, businesses that were changing something, um, and you know, I the easiest. And while there are many ways to do that, I think the taste of the early stage, um, not entrepreneurship as well as on the investment side, were the things that I was thinking about most. Like you can go and work on great teams at lots of big businesses moving the needle and creating great things, but the sort of the the idea of creating something from nothing and put, pushing that envelope was something that was really enticing to me. Did you feel like you needed to go to business school? Is that something you would recommend, or what drove you initially? So it's interesting. You know, I had two post-MBA jobs before I went to business school, and I think, I think and I never thought, I thought, you know, I remember being a banker and seeing some of our associates come that were much older than me. Like, I want to do that job of when I was that, you know, as that age, you know, thinking that to myself. And I think there was a couple of things. I think one was the dramatic shift in the in the market, and so and and you know, I you know, sitting in venture, at least half of the seats in venture just evaporated overnight. And I think that was that had a profound. Um, impact on me when you start to see a lot of people that you know and know really well sort of completely displaced. Um, two was a, I really, which made me think about the kinds of skills I wanted to build. And, um, and while 
I may not need, have needed to go to business school to build those skills, you know, whether they were, in, in my case, I, I wanted to be an operator. Um, it was a place where I could um, spend some time thinking about exactly what kinds of companies and building some of those skills. So, you know, I think it was a combination of sort of that big shift as well as that the market, but it certainly was. I don't think when I look back, it was a box I needed to check. So, what are some of those other boxes that you feel like you've checked, but maybe didn't have to? Um, I would say that in every career transition, there have been lots of positive things that have come out of it. And so, and I'd say, the most painful part of my career, the, the the only thing that I think I went sort of kicking and screaming to was consulting post-business school. I was, I was sort of ready to go. Um, I spent a lot of time interviewing and networking. The feedback I got was, you're always on the outside. You're a banker. You're, you're, you're a... Um, you're in VC, like, what do you know about operating a company? Um, and, you know, I, I, I dragged my feet and, and joined at the last possible moment to have, you know, as long as possible to find that role, and I didn't. And so that said, when I think about all of the roles I've had to date to, before I became an operator, my time there was the most valuable. I, you know, I learned the most. I learned how to manage. I learned how to um, communicate succinctly. You know, work with large data sets. All these things that um, are blocking and tackling tools in order to get the right information in front of you the fastest to make decisions as quickly as possible. And that, um, and so, I feel like it was in some ways a blessing that it happened, but I was not happy and I certainly wasn't happy during my period of time there. <laughs> what recommendations would you give to someone who's listening and perhaps wants to be doing something and is allowing some of that external chatter to hold them back and saying maybe you're not fit for that type of role and um, how do you overcome that? Um. It's always good to network and understand the landscape and talk to experts and hear what everyone has to say. Um, but I think there is at a point where you can get too much information and there, there's too much noise and there's too many naysayers. Because if anything that someone has wanted to do that is different or pushes the envelope, there's going to be lots of people to say, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. That's crazy. What, you know, you're torpedoing your career, you're wasting your time, or you're never going to raise any money or whatever the like noise is. And I think, you know, it's, it's one really being true to yourself, like why I want to do this. And I think any time that someone is spending time doing anything, it's your most precious resource. Like when you, you know, when I think about when I'm meeting an entrepreneur, I'm like, wow, this person has chosen to spend every single moment of their time building X. Let me hear that person out because that's more important than anything else. Um, and so, and if you are willing, if you, whatever you're seeing in the market or what, whatever um, you're thinking about, is pushing you or you keep or it's something that you can't stop thinking about, then maybe there's something there. 
And then when you also, I think the other piece of this is, um, and big corporations like banks and consulting firms are really good at this, putting the putting the stakes so high for an exit, right? Like you only leave this place once or you only have the opportunity to make this decision once. It has to be perfect. Well, at the end of the day, if it's not perfect, you can go back and re- revisit it or pivot your career or do something else. And the, the I think the stakes, I think, I think school and the traditional institutions create this sort of level of um, it, it creates almost too, a too high of an expectation and so and I think if you can step away from that and think about okay I'm going to do this for a year two years five years and these are all the things that you know in the worst case scenario it doesn't work these are all the things I'm going to learn and this is how it's going to propel my career mm-hmm. this is how I'm going to think about things yeah I mean thinking about that worst case scenario I think a lot of people don't even don't think about it tangibly. There's just this gray cloud of what ifs. And they're thinking like, world will end. But they don't actually take time being like, okay, here's the choice I could make. And here's the consequence. And here's the other choice I can make. And here's the consequence. And we forget to value that wasting time is actually perhaps one of the worst consequences of a choice you can make. Absolutely. So now tell me about your transition into fab.com. Um, so, you know, it felt like a very natural transition. I mean, worked on Etsy. Fab felt like, you know, at the Etsy sellers graduated, um, had a distinct, you know, it was one of the first um, retailers in the market to really focus on modern and and design. And it was amazing. I mean, we, you know, we, we had a lot of early success. We raised a ton of capital. We were, you know, sort of hot. We could hire anyone we wanted. Um, it was a super exciting. It was a super exciting time. And, you know, we, you know, as a company made some very big macro decisions that were, that didn't pay off. And, you know, ultimately the business didn't work. Can you talk about some of those decisions? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest was, you know, there was sort of a underlying belief that we needed to grow the fastest ever. And we needed to be, you know, we needed to be, the faster we got to a billion dollars, the better. And um, there was a lot of things that worked in the U.S. And I think we got to maybe 80 to 90 percent in the U.S. And when you think about the business model, you know, there are other flash sale sites that worked in the in the U.S. And, you know, we we went out and raised with a story around growth and we were already in 32 categories. We had already you know, sort of optimized marketing and our current market. Literally the only way that we could potentially achieve that growth was to go outside of the U.S. And I think, one, it was too early. And two, it was too costly um, and too uh, too big of a project. And so we went long, you know, Asia was difficult because you needed to have a partner or it was important to have a partner at the time. South America was difficult because of tariffs and all kinds of other um, last mile issues. And so you're left with, with Europe, which is not a bunch of United States. It's, it's, you know, a bunch of different countries with 
different last mile issues, different languages, different marketing strategies, all of that stuff. And so we went um, we went long in Europe, and it was um, it was very difficult, and um, and also very difficult to grow that quickly and take the culture that we had created here in the U.S. and bring it to another part of the world. And so you know, fast forward, we spend a lot of money really quickly to gain a very marginal amount of revenue um, in Europe, and it just didn't work. And take me to your shoes at that point while you're watching all this unfold. Was there moments when you felt like maybe you should pull back? Um, I think the moment to, it was not to go. And so I think, you know, that was the, you know, while I had, you know, I was a C-level executive in the company and had a seat at the table, it was, were there seats that were more influential than others or, you know, or, you know, was it, you know, how, how were decisions going to be made there? And so I was not the only one who was hesitant or, you know, sort of said no, that that, I don't think that that's what we should be doing at this point. Um, But once you're, you know, in a company and once they do that, you either, you're either on the bus or off the bus. And so I think, it was hard because you could see a lot of the cracks um, and the cracks happening pretty quickly. But there was also sort of a, a a dedication to what you were doing. So like I, you know, we were trying to make this work and we were going to do everything in our power to make it work and take take what we learned here and apply that there. And so I think that was um, I think that was a particularly challenging time for me. And that was when. You know, I started to feel um, one that it was when you when you talk about this concept of enoughness. Like, did I do enough to sway those kinds of decisions? And then, am I doing enough to protect my team? So, as you know, I you know, particularly as sort of the the walls started to crumble. I thought about all of the people who I looked in the eye and said, come link arms with me and come build this thing and it's going to be great. And then, you know, fast forward is, oh, wait, maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not as great as we thought it was going to be. And I took that, I think that was probably the one of the hardest points in my career is just feeling very responsible for, um, and none of them would actually put that, that guilt or that responsibility on me, but that's me saying, like, I can't, like, you know, so-and-so on my team and so-and-so on my team, you know, that per, you know who have families and, you know, are later in their careers or, you know, that kind of thing. And so, but I have to say, we, we built a tremendous team and all of those people, I mean, lots of great things have come out of it. So um, I hired incredible women on my team who have gone off to start companies, and two of which were, you know, under, th- under thirty, under thirty this, you know, this week, and, um, you know, others who have gone on to, you know, run businesses and, you know, run operations at other businesses. So there's just, you know, and we're, you know, a really tight group. So I mean, there's lots of great things, but it's, it was, um, I think, it was also made me rethink what I wanted to actually do 
with my career and did I have another operating role in me? And um, ultimately, I decided that I didn't <laughs> on the venture side. Um, but that was, I think, that was, I think that was one of the hardest points of my career. How did you deal with that stress and that? I mean, it seems like there was guilt involved there too. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it, it may have manifested itself in guilt, but I think it was, it, it was, I think, a and. It, it may be a female trait, but sort of like, what could I have done better? What could I have done to prepare my team for this? What could I have, you know, prevented from, you know, a macro decision level? And um, I think it was really hard. I mean, it was hard to come to work every day and be like, everything is okay, and like keep everyone motivated and like on their, you know, on the tasks at hand when you sort of think about it. But uh, I don't know. A lot, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of working out, a lot of sh- trying to push those demons and naysayers. And I'd say, you know, once – and then it became another challenge coming out. So once I got to the place where I'm like, okay, I know everyone's going to be okay because they're all superstars and they're all going to figure it out. And, you know, we're all going to, you know, land in great places. And then there was like a whole nother sort of thing to think about is – in any transition, there's lots of people who are, I would say the majority of people are, want to be helpful, um, but their help doesn't necessarily manifest itself in a way that is actually helpful for you um, and can also sort of be deminimizing of like your situation. Oh, you know, you, we need to find you a job immediately. It's, you know, everything like the sky is falling. Like we need to like fix, you know, fix this problem immediately. Whereas like, you know, I'm like, well, I'm like exploring and I'm thinking about things and I'm you know doing some things in the meantime and it's, you know, all fine. There's sort of like this, this angst. Um, and then there's also judgment, right? So it's like, well, it failed because, you know, mm-hmm. you know, Beth was in charge of marketing and like marketing, they, they overspent in that, you know, whatever it happened like I wasn't in charge of marketing and that may not be the reason but like those those kinds of things where you start to hear and sort of like making sure that you can think about what you're actually going what you actually want to do where you're going and forget about sort of this other noise is important so what's the balance of asking for advice and thoughts and then just taking that time for yourself to reflect I think it's being very careful about who you ask advice from. And so in thinking about, you know, I think you go to your your natural first set of group and many people are very willing to make introductions. And I think thinking about why you want to be speaking to that person on the other end, because you also want someone who want who you think will invest at least the time that you are with them or speaking to them, thinking about the question that you're asking and, and uh, or what you're exploring. So I think it's um, – and then also being willing to be like, you know what, I don't really buy that. That's just not what – you know, that's just not what I'm thinking about. That's just not where I'm going. Was there a point in your personal journey where you um, really understood and felt your sense of self – because what I hear a lot is um, people will say, um, whether to me or to others, they'll, they'll say, you have so much potential, there's so much you should be doing, and then you start to feel this like intense pressure, and then you just feel like none of it is ever going to be enough because you can never measure up to potentially these imaginary expectations. And at what point did you 
did you kind of come into your own and say like, you know, I am pretty awesome? And (laughs) (laughs) wow, Um, I'd say it probably really wasn't until Fab. And, you know, we built a team quickly. We had really audacious goals. We hit all of them, plus some. Um, And, you know, and it was was really fun. Like, it was just a a really amazing, you know, we really built something amazing. And I think it wasn't until, it wasn't until that experience where I felt like, okay, like, I really know I can do this. I really know I can move the needle. I know I can, you know, build teams and create goals and, you know, think about sort of in, um, invest for us investing. In, there was lots of things that we could have done. And so and, and all of them needed capital, sort of where we were going to put our capital. Um, you know, but that switches on a dime when you're like, okay, well, now this is not working. And we're, you know, thinking about things that have to, have to rethink that. But I think that was the first time. And I think... Um, you know, I think next when um, I was raising capital for WME Ventures, um, it was it was difficult. I've never done it before. People were like, what are you thinking? How do you think you can actually do this? Um, and and we got a lot of no's, and not only no's, but sort of like, what are you thinking? Kind of no's. Um, but we were able to do it. And so I think once, you know, we were making investments, we had done a first close and we were making investments while we were sort of proving it out. And um, I think that was, and when like our first company sort of hit like a, a great milestone um, and, you know, some of our companies started raising follow-ons like, oh, wow, this thing, you know, these, <laughs> you sort of wake up one day and like, oh, my whole portfolio is going to go to zero and I can't, you know, like, oh my God. Um, so when we started to have some milestones hit, I was like, all right, like now, I don't know if I th- think that I was like, oh, like we got this down, but I'm like, all right, we're, we're, we're hitting some goals and things are looking pretty good and, you know, we can make some good decisions here. So prior to that switch, what was some of the like internal self-talk that you you had even at Etsy? Because you were doing incredible stuff at Etsy. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I was running basically the whole business there um, for a period of time. And I think it was a lot of self-doubt. It was like, you know, one, did I – was this decision just from a macro level, like the dumbest decision I've ever made? Like, you know, between my ex-colleagues and, you know, my friends in the market who, you know, I live in New York, so, you know, no one was working in startups. You know, it was like pretty sort of like, what are you doing? And, you know, we were, you know, periods like, you know, I don't want to say dicey, but like, you know, periods of time where we were running out, you know, going to run out of money and we were in a – fundraising process and um and you know and things were really hard like you know it was you know eking eking out a lot on a little as you know you know all the entrepreneurs are listening to this know is is not an easy thing and so um there was lots of like well one what was I what was I even thinking to begin with and then two do I have this in me to actually like really move the needle here and I think that was a question that I asked a lot a lot, and I think the other pieces is the highs are high, and mm. you know when you're when an early stage coming, and the lows are really low, <laughs> and so you try to hold on to the highs, but those those lows kind of yeah. hit you hard. Yeah, I mean you've had so many transitions in your life. Um, were there particularly um, stressful times at Fab, or like a particular instance that you can tell that 
you know, perhaps has to do with your gender and just, you know, navigating that company as, as a high-powered woman? Um, you know, I think there, there were definitely, you know, across my career, uh, a bunch of instances like that. I think, you know, it, it's not a secret that, you know, men are generally evaluated on their potential and women on what they've done in the past. Um, and so I think from the standpoint of having opportunities presented, I think those are, I think there are, I definitely know that there are fewer stretch roles presented than not. Um, but I'd say like one specific instance when I was negotiating coming into one of my roles, um, I knew what the compensation for the role should be. And um this particular company was hiring two people at once, uh, both of which were at the exact same level, and arguably had worked at you know better firms and achieved more, you know, at companies that achieved more. And I had to walk away twice, like literally, like turn down the offer and walk away um, to get to the same comp as the man who got the other offer. And I didn't find this out until you know several months later, where you know we're in a board meeting and comp is on the on the you know on the the screen, and and I I remember thinking distinctly like there's no chance that that guy had to walk away twice, and so you know what you know what's up with that and, what, and how I don't know what the thought process was behind that, but um, but it certainly wasn't a a role question and certainly wasn't a, a background question. What gave you the confidence to walk away a couple times? Um, I think one is I I sort of did my homework on what market was, and so I was really comfortable with that. Um, and two, um, I was okay with not getting the job, and I think you'd have you have to be. And so I wanted and I wanted to make sure that I was compensated fairly and if I did, wasn't going to comp- get compensated fairly I didn't want to do I didn't want to work with the team mm. were, were there any worries in your mind or you were kind of like I'm willing to lose it all or I'm at least lose this position I mean look at the time it was you know there at the time there wasn't that many sort of roles that fit exactly my skill set and background so it would have not been great if I <laughs> Um, But I was, you know, at the time I was, you know, consulting and advising companies, like we would have been able to figure it out. Um, But, uh, you know, I'm glad they came around. But, you know, it was was interesting. And the other piece is, you know, you coming in, it's a little bit tricky because women do get judged for negotiating. And so I was also worried about, you know, being too aggressive coming in. Would that be sort of a... I don't want to say taint, but sort of a position me in an unfavorable light going forward. And fortunately, like, it didn't, and that was fine. Um, and, you know, we had a pretty um, a pretty diverse team there. But, you know, that was something that, that really stood out to me. Got it. And I want to talk now about your transition um, into building WME Ventures and what that was like and what were some of the biggest challenges and mental challenges particularly for you going into this new role? Well, it was a huge shift. Um, You know, I'd spent nearly a decade as an operator. Um, I was known as an operator. Everyone, all of my closest mentors and, you know, friends would consider me an operator. Um, Most people had forgotten I'd worked in venture at all in my career. And so I think it was one... 
I'm really f- trying to figure out ways to create legitimacy. So one with an organization that wasn't necessarily known for investing, they're you know amazing in lots of other parts um, of the business world and in entertainment. Um, and then to someone who you know ha- you know is a first you know l- literally a first time manager and has never done it before. And so um, I think I you know when we first started to go out, I defaulted on all of the strengths of WME versus thinking about or presenting the strengths of me. And we and there was is interesting. I had. Um, I had someone come in and, and walk through my pitch, and that was sort of the feedback. And as soon as we made the shift, so it wasn't we weren't diminishing the other piece, but focusing more on the team and what the team brought to the table. It wasn't until then when it started to click with investors. And so once it started, you know, once we hit our first couple of yeses, then it started to feel like okay, like maybe we can actually get this stuff done. And if we, you know, if we go to, we have enough of a bats and, um, you know, talk about this. And then, you know, in that meantime, we also did some actual work. So, you know, we, we've made a few investments that we could talk about. And so while things were still in the early days, we could show that, like, here was our thesis. This is what we set out to do. And here's we're starting to do, do that. So, um, but it was hard. I mean, it was... It was a reminder that we are always telling ourselves and we need, you know, and I was pushing it out to like, oh, like I'm with these guys and they're great. And like, we're going to, you know, we're going to utilize these tools. But ultimately it was, I was running it and I needed to be selling myself. Why do you feel like you initially had that um, instinct to, I guess, diminish yourself? Um, You know, I think it was because it was so proud the other pieces were so powerful I th- or I thought you know I perceived them as more powerful and that you know I don't know if people would just know or it was less important I, I I I thought it was you know I positioned it as less important which was absolutely wrong and how are you feeling now I mean now that you've you've been in that position and that what was that mental shift like? So now you've you're starting to sell yourself, and then now you're getting into the trenches of you know, investing and helping these companies. Um, what what is that day to day feeling like? Um, you know now you know post starting to build a portfolio. I think in the early days when we were like you know trying to figure it out, and we you know didn't have any companies under our belt, and you know it was the the bumps in the road were harder to take. I think now. Um, while there's still lots of bumps in the road and, you know, the jury is still out, um, there's a lot for a lot that I'm really proud of of what we built. Um, and, you know, we've, we're working with an incredible set of entrepreneurs who, you know, are leaning in every day on their business. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think having, I mean, we talked about this earlier, just some 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 small early wins under our belt and uh, hopefully they'll become bigger wins and you know this we can declare it a success at the end yeah do you still have moments where you feel like you're not good enough or um, whether in work or personal um i'm a working mom so um that feeling happens more often than i'd like um i have two two small boys um and balancing 
home and work is always a challenge. But I'd say, um, you know, in work specifically, I mean, you know, every day you're sort of, I don't want to say fighting, but you're like trying to win. And so, you know, you're going to win some and lose some. And, you know, sometimes those, those, you can take those losses harder than you should. Do you have any advice for that, that, let's say that Beth who was, you know, early on in her career, um, feeling like she wasn't smart enough or experienced enough in those positions? Is there anything different that you would have done or told yourself now? I would have definitely, I would tell myself to take more risk. And I'd also tell myself that, you know, all of the decisions, whether than the micro decisions when you're at work every day or, you know, bigger decisions, you know, thinking about career shifts or moving firms or whatever, are not as big as they seem. And to not sort of internalize those those moves and decisions. While they're important, they're not the end-all, be-all. And those are all things that can be sort of, you can record, you, we, we set the course. Would you then actively encourage people to think less and just go for decisions? No, I mean, I think people should think about their decisions because ultimately, I mean, thinking about where you want to go is the most important thing. And so, you know, if I want to be a CEO or I want to be an investor, what are the things that I want to do in between in order to get there? Um, and so I think that's important. But feeling that the, like, extreme angst around, you know, if I do this and the pluses and minuses and all, you know, getting in the minutiae around that, I think that's where you can just get yourself stuck. And um, and ultimately, you're not going to really know until you get there. And do you think all of that is, is still bent on or dependent on experience to be able to make those decisions faster? Yeah. And I think it's also, I mean, we're still working in a construct of where, you know, you go to the right school, you get the right job, you stay there for a period of time, you get promoted, you go to a better, you know, company, you know, whatever, like that trajectory. And I think, you know, we're starting, we're seeing people, and I'm an example, of careers that are just not that linear, right? And so, and it's about what am I learning? What am I taking away from this this experience and while I'm working really hard and doing the right things at my job, but ultimately I might not be there forever. And so thinking about thinking about your career instead of two-year increments in, you know, 10-year increments. What drives you today? A couple of things. I mean, I just, I just love working with companies and building and you know, you know, I just built a firm and being part of a new firm that, you know, is in the early stages of growing as well. So um, I think that's something that's just really exciting. And I, I'm super fortunate that I get to meet, you know, people who are super passionate and excited about building what they're building every day. So it's, it's pretty much a dream come true. And I think ultimately, you know, we haven't talked about sort of the inherent biases and and misogyny across the board. Like I have two little boys, and you know if I can raise them to be not only supportive of women, but creating opportunities for women, um, or being p- real partners with women, uh, I mean that's sort of basically all I can do. Mm-hmm. What are some of those 
I mean, other subtle biases are, that you're experiencing even today? Um, we, I mean, we see it all. I mean, it, it, from from an investment standpoint, we see it from the standpoint of you know people not understanding certain segments of the business of the market, whether it's you know a female focused business or else you know elsewhere. We just have so few, so little diversity in the ranks of investors. But we're also seeing just you know approaches of um, you know just how women have been treated over the last you know. I mean, it's over the last over the de- last decades, you know, and we're starting to see some of that stuff come out of like, you know, some of the things that were challenging for for women, whether you know, it, from the extreme, the outward extreme of sexual harassment to even you know, smaller biases of sort of being cut off in the boardroom or you know, whatever you know, whatever the small sort of I call them infractions that sort of mm-hmm. ladder up to bigger, bigger issues and we and the scary part is is you start to see this stuff at a young age so you know how kids speak to each other um on the playground or what they say about their classmates and you know that's coming from us and so making sure that that you know not only in the workplace but you know for our next generations that's we can address that Mm. are there any remaining fears that you feel like are driving you whether it's anything from fear of failure to fear of not living up to your full potential or running out of time? Um, I think time is a big, it weighs heavily on me. And I think one is not just the time like in years, but also the, how I spend my time every day. And so when, you know, ultimately when I think about how I want to be Known or how I want to be known is is to be an incredible partner, and that to be an incredible partner takes time. And so you, I'm always making trade offs on like what I'm actually doing, and I think that's where I have a lot of um, angst and worry that I'm not making those trade offs the way I should I should be. So like optimizing my time for the things that are most impactful, um, the the companies or teams that I can help the most. How do I utilize my time? And then, you know, going, you know, and then moving into my family, the same, this sort of the same sort of thinking around making sure that there's enough time and what I'm doing is the most impactful there. Is there any way that you quell those fears or kind of quiet that voice? <laughs> um, I spend a lot of time strategizing about my calendar and what I spend my time <laughs> doing. And so um, I think one, just b- being organized around it and two, thoughtful about, you know, when, um, when to lean in on things and when to, you know, when I'm not necessarily needed. And so, you know, trying to balance those, those two. You know, it was interesting. There was never a position of time where I didn't think I couldn't get up. It was just a matter of like, how much time it took to get there. Mm-hmm. Like almost like internal, like getting over the loss. Like I think even leaving Etsy, like, it was it was time for me to go, but it was a loss because I felt so connected to the business at Etsy. Like I mean, at Fab, I put so much of my heart and soul in it, but you know, obviously, like there was no choice. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? So it felt you know you first have this like tremendous. You're like in denial at first, and then you know you, the the stages of death. Like same thing. It's like you know going through denial, and then you're like, oh my god, then it's an actual loss, and then you like sort of recover and like come out of it, and then yeah. you know ultimately you'll be able to. Yeah, 
I just think that's ironic because I feel the same way where I'm like, I know that if you give me something, I will execute on it and I will do it well because you just can't not do it well yeah. if you're a perfectionist, right? Um, and yet there's sometimes that fear of even just taking that first step in the first in, in the first place. And so I think for most people, it's that how do we get over the fear of just making the move versus caring about all the extra stuff? Because that's where we all get hung up. Yeah. And that goes back to the point of like not putting so much pressure on every decision and that, you know, making an educated leap, but making the leap in, and you're never going to know until you get there. And then ultimately, you know, look, I think for me, if I was a perfect example, like, you know, when I, it was, you know, when I went to Etsy, I was like, oh my God, what are you doing? That's crazy. When it was fab. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. You're brilliant. Like, you just won the lottery. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, after it just, you know, falling like that, it's like I learned a ton and it was, it was an amazing experience. And so, and then you move on mm-hmm. and it opened other doors after that. So, yeah. What do you think of the word legacy? And how do you think you will define your legacy? So I don't really think about my legacy on a, I actually haven't really thought about it at all, let alone day to day basis. But I, I do know, and we talked about this earlier, that I want to be known as being, you know, a great, a great partner, whether that's as a leader or as, you know, and as an investing partner or, you know, to my direct reports, like just someone who people want to have the conversation. I want to be the first call to my, for my companies. I want in my my teams to feel like they, you know, want me to want my advice or want my help. And so ultimately, you know, that's that's um, that's how I think about it. To finish off, we have um, something called the one thing, which is just. The idea that one thing, one voice, one person can completely change a situation or the outcome. Um, So this is just called The One Thing, first thing that comes out of your mind. Name one book that you would unhesitatingly recommend to anyone and why. Um, In Transition. It's a it's an it's a HBR book and it has all of these exercises around your aptitudes and it's sort of forces you to to think about what you really want to do and so as as thinking about this theme i think is one of the most impactful books to really understand what 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 you're good at and what's important to you yeah especially now since i feel like everyone's always in transition (laughs) (laughs) it's a perpetual state (laughs) yeah um if there was one decade that you could live in which would it be and why i think now this decade. I think right now we're just seeing so much change um, of social change. And so um, I'm really optimistic for the future. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I wish I was starting my career now. (laughs) Who is one person that you would like to have dinner with, dead or alive? Jeff Bezos. Why? Oh, why? Um... I think one you need to think about where he start the where he started his business and you know from books and sort of thinking about all of the opportunities over the last couple of decades it's just f- incredibly fascinating to me. What is one piece of advice you would want to leave 
to the listeners? Believe in yourself. And what is one question that you wish people would ask each other more? How are you feeling? How are you feeling right now? I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling relaxed. <laughs> um, and then last thing, because I think it's really important for people to not just hear some of the advice, um, but to actually take action. Um, so if there was one challenge that you could issue to the listeners, something small, what would it be that they could do today? Um, I think thinking about why you're doing what you're doing right now and is there anything that you would want or hope to change. And you don't need to do that today, but thinking about, you know, if everything's great, that's fine. But usually there's something that you'd want to optimize and how are you going to get to get there, whether it's learning a different skill or finding a different role, whether in your company or out of a company, I'd say, you know, really think about what you what you want your goal to what your goal is and how are you going to get there because i think in the everyday where we get busy and sort of caught up in caught the up noise. in the noise you know we lose sight of that cool well thank you so much for being on the show no, thank you for having me there you have it folks i hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as i did I created the Enoughness podcast to reveal the real stories behind the leaders we admire, to address this universal question that we all have at some point or another. Am I good enough? So just remember that you're not on this journey alone and that you do have the power of enoughness. If you want the full show notes and transcript from today's episode, go to www.lisawang.co slash podcast. Again, that's lisawang.co slash podcast. And you'll be able to follow along. I'd love if you could leave a review or tag anything that you share on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag enoughness. And you can find me at Lisa Works, L-I-S-A-W-O-R-X on Twitter or Instagram. Catch you in the next episode.